Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to all the times you've been welcomed already today. Those visiting and those who have not been a visitor for maybe more than 40 years, you're all welcome and glad that you're all here uh, joining with us again. Those joining us online by live stream from wherever you happen to be in the world today, glad you could be joining us. My name is Wade. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here at Rexdale Alliance. And uh, just coming up on the screen is a few ways that you can contact me. Uh, if you have response to the message, if you have things that you're thinking, uh, ways that God is speaking into your life, I'd just love to hear about that. Uh, over the last number of weeks, a number of you have been able to get in touch with me and tell me what God is saying to you uh, in the midst of our teaching time and in our services. And I just want to say I love being part of this worshiping community. I mean, this morning as we got to declare the holiness and righteousness of God together and to say we're going to praise our Lord, our God forevermore and to have this room filled with God's praises is something my family and I are absolutely just so privileged to be part of. And I love the songs that we're singing and the prayers that we're praying and the intention of heart as we talk every weekend about connecting Rexdale to Jesus and his mission. We've been hearing more about that uh, through the message today. Uh, this weekend, as part of our summer series, we're going to look at a character who you may have heard of named David. You may not have heard of him. That's okay. Now, we're not sure what his last name is, but his name was David in the scriptures. And there's a lot about his life recorded in scripture. But for our time together today, we're going to be focusing in on a season of David's life found in 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. We're going to be a few places in the scripture, but primarily in 1 Samuel 24. If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, maybe you're just investigating the claims of Jesus and wondering what's going on, uh, you can take a Bible, table of contents, 1 Samuel, and the big number 24 indicates where the chapter begins. You can also follow along on the screen, and if you'd like help some other time, how to navigate the Bible and find what's in there, one of our elders, pastors, any one of us would be glad to guide you. In fact, you could even snuggle up to the person next to you and just ask them about it, but make sure you introduce yourself first, okay, before there's any snuggling that goes on. You know, if you were to start reading at the beginning of 1 Samuel, you would be immersed in the life of a man named Saul, not David at all. Saul was the first king of Israel, but he soon abandoned God's way of leadership and allowed pride uh, to rule in his heart. What becomes clear in the scriptures is that as much as Saul is the main character through most of 1 Samuel, you have this man named David who's beginning to emerge as the one who will ultimately move God's redemptive plan forward. There is this incredible tension woven into the narrative of the book. You see, Saul doesn't take lightly this threat to his throne and to his rule. He recognizes, he can't miss it, this favor that is on David's life that God has placed on David. And Saul decides to kill him. I mean, that's what you do, right? When someone's in your way, when someone's threatening you, you eliminate them. And so for a good portion of David's life, he is relegated to living in caves and running for his life. And yet his confidence in God, the scripture seems to indicate, grows in this season instead of dying in the darkness. Why? I mean, what did David know about life in the cave and finding confidence in God that could maybe help us on this Sunday morning where we sit today? To begin to answer that, let me tell you just a little bit about what's going on in David's life. David had been anointed, that is chosen, had oil poured on him as a sign of choosing, anointed by a man named Samuel to be the next king of Israel. God had already decided that he was removing his anointing from Saul and placing it on David. But before David takes over the throne, he gets a job serving in the court of the current king. Remember, that's Saul, the reigning king of Israel. 
Now we hear about uh, all through 1 Samuel, David defeats Goliath, and the army love him. People are writing songs about David, and it seems like everything he touches is turning to gold. I mean, he is on the fast track to the palace, and he was going to be king. Until, well, life happened, and one by one, all those wonderful things he'd been given begin to be stripped away. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. You feel like all of life is up and to the right, and then something happens, and it starts to fall apart. You ever experienced something like that? David did. Now, let me run through them, some of the losses he experienced in his life. First of all, his job. He'd been promoted from a shepherd kid to a court musician to a warrior and was the most successful officer in the whole army of Israel. And one day, Saul became pathologically jealous and decided to try to pin David to the wall with a spear. And David was gone. He lost his job. He lost his income. He lost his security. He went from being a warrior to being a fugitive. Imagine a loss just like that. Next, he loses his wife. He had married Saul's daughter, Michael. I get this. David had married the daughter of the king. If you think Game of Thrones is crazy, I mean, just go, get into the Bible. Forget all that stuff. Just come to the Bible. And one day, Saul sent soldiers to kill David. And David's wife helped him escape, and, he was taken, and she was taken away by Saul. And Saul takes his daughter and gives her to another man to be married. And so now David has lost his job. He's lost his family. So he runs, he flees to a town called Ramah, where Samuel, the man who had anointed him, his spiritual mentor, that's where Samuel lives. Samuel was the one who had chosen David through God's anointing in the first place. Samuel was the one who assured David of God's presence in his life. It was Samuel was the one that God spoke through to David. And David thinks Samuel, he knew, would be a safe person, a safe place. But no matter how far David ran, it was never far enough. And Saul heard about this, knew he was in Ramah, and he sent his soldiers there to kill David. And David had to make another escape. He says farewell to Samuel, because Samuel was an old man by this time, and Samuel could not go with him. And soon after this, the scripture tells us that Samuel died. David lost his job. He lost his family. He loses his mentor. And so he runs to his best friend, a man named Jonathan. The scripture says that Jonathan loved David more than Jonathan even loved himself. And this is probably the one person in the world. This is the one person in the world that David knew to the core of his being that he could trust with everything. I mean, Jonathan was willing to stand up to his own father, Saul, and risk his life for David. But Jonathan could not leave the court. Jonathan was not going to raise a sword against his own father. And so David runs for his life once more. And now he's lost his best friend. This is a man who is expecting a palace. He's waiting for the day that he would take the throne. He had wealth and power, fame, friends, security, and what he thought was an absolute guaranteed future. And of course, this wasn't his idea in the first place. It's not like David dreamed this up. This was all God's idea. These were God's promises on David's life. And now it all seems to be gone. No money, no home, no friends, no job, no advisors. And he's on the run for his life. He's expecting a palace and he ends up in a cave with no explanation of why and no guarantee that it will ever be over. That's why on a morning like this, I want us to talk for a moment about this cave dwelling confidence in God. You see, the cave is where you end up when all of your props and all your crutches and everything that holds you up, all your scaffolding gets stripped away. 
The cave is where you end up when you thought you were going to do great things for God or maybe have an incredible family. And now it's clear that things are not working out the way that you had dreamed. The cave this morning represents our deepest insecurities in the place where confidence can easily be lost. And I haven't been around here long, but I've been around people my whole life. (laughs) And I know some of you are in a cave right now. You came here with your heart and soul in a cave. Now, maybe it's because you've lost a job or you're under some extreme financial pressure. For some of you, maybe it's because your dreams of a family life have been absolutely shattered. Maybe you've lost a spouse to death or desertion or divorce. Or maybe you've always dreamed of having a marriage and it just hasn't happened for you. Or maybe it has, but you're just so deeply disappointed by that relationship for whatever reason. Or maybe this morning you find yourself in transition. And we prayed for students and teachers. Uh, I know for me, transition always places me in this, this place of insecurity. And so you're in a cave. Maybe you've lost a mentor or a good friend in this last season. Or maybe you've been deeply disappointed in relationship with a parent or a grandparent or someone else in your family. Maybe for you this morning, it, it involves a physical condition. And somebody you love has lost their health. Or maybe you have... And you've noticed your own health slipping away and it terrifies you. Or maybe like all of us, you've just made a bad decision somewhere along the line. You made some bad choices and now everything is crashing down and you find yourself alone. And for whatever reason, one of those reasons or any other, you're in the cave today. Now, some of you are not there today. Can I give you the good news? You will be someday, (laughs) whether you're there today or not. Um, But nobody plans on living there. And sooner or later, everybody spends some time in the cave, that place of disorientation. And what's hardest, I think, about being in the cave is that you start to wonder, has God utterly forgotten me? Has God forgotten his promises? In all the busyness of what God's involved with, does he remember me? Does he have a promise for me? Does he have a word for me? Does he even hear my cries? Will I ever be anywhere but here in this cave Will I die here? Well, this morning we need to get a hold of the fact that the cave, just, it is just true, the cave is where God sometimes molds and shapes human lives like no place else. Sometimes when all the props and crutches in your life get stripped away and you find that all you've got in this world is God, you discover that God is enough. And God really is enough. And all those props that you thought your life was being held up by can't support the complexity of your life anyway. And sometimes of all the places in the world, it's not the palace. It's the cave where you meet God most intimately. Anyone have a testimony like that in the room? Well, there's no real chronology here, but best as we can be told from the text, David spends about 10 years, a whole decade of his life in the wilderness on the run as a fugitive. When from a human perspective, it looked like God's promises to him were never going to come true. I mean, he can't flip forward in the story, can he? Just 10 years, day after day after day, wondering when God is going to keep his promise to him. Hard years. Now, know this. David was not entirely alone. He did have some people come to him and form this little community. But I'm going to tell you, this was not the most promising group. Um, this was not the varsity team that was coming around David. First Samuel 22.2. This is David's little community. See this. All those who were in distress, who were in debt, or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with them. 
Now, some of you are here and you lead our life group ministries, right? You lead a life group. How would you like that to be the description that goes in the bulletin of your group? That's your group members, the distressed, the indebted, and the discontent. I mean, that's an enticing little community to form, wouldn't it be? Maybe you want to sign up for that one. Or maybe, I just thought of this this morning, maybe for others you're thinking that could be the theme of your next family reunion right there. Distress, death, and discontent. Eh? David spends years with these guys living in caves and on the run, 400 of them, 401, on the run in the wilderness. Honestly, I can't think of a more insecure, discouraging, and depressing path in life. And yet for all of David's failures, and be clear about this, the Bible is clear of many David's failures. Our ultimate goal isn't to be like David. We want to be like Jesus, but we can learn some things from David. Because David did some things right. And we have the opportunity to sit with a bird's eye view over his life, and God uses his word and the stories of these imperfect, flawed people to point us to the perfection of Jesus. And that's what we're looking at. David did some things right. And one of the things David did that we can learn from in this instance is how he built his confidence in God in spite of the cave. Because he figured out early on that his security, identity, and confidence were not based on circumstances or his socioeconomic position or the opinions of people. David was not defined by the caves he lived in. David, this imperfect man who longed for the heart of God has some important lessons about life in the cave and finding confidence in the one and only God. And what we see in David is how to live in the cave and not be crushed by it. So what does David do while in the cave to find confidence in God? I want us just to consider briefly three decisions. We see David make three decisions. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to take something out to write with or on your device and Because I think you can share these things with others in your life. That's some of the point of teaching. Here's the first thing. Number one, if you want to cultivate confidence in the Lord, the first thing we do is we discuss our discouragement or insecurity openly with God himself. In other words, we're going to call this complain up. Complain up. I like to complain out. That's kind of my mode, right? We complain out and let others know what is sinking us. But do you ever openly discuss your discouragement with God? You know, name what's really bothering you. Name what's really hurting. I'm telling you, this takes time and effort. I want you to look at Psalm 142. I want you to notice something about this psalm. Now, many of the psalms, as you know, were written or are associated to David. And this is one of them, Psalm 142. And some psalms, they have this little superscription above them that gives context to where this prayer or song was written. And if you notice the one that's above Psalm 142, notice what it says. It says a masculine, that's a, that's a type of psalm, of David when he was in the cave. So Psalm 142 is written from the context of the cave. This is a psalm for, for cave dwellers. And this apparently is expressing the cry of David's heart when he was living in this dark place. And look what he says. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. You know, this is very interesting. Old Testament scholars tell us they're all different kinds of psalms. Some of you know this. Some are what we call Thanksgiving psalms. Others are called enthronement psalms about the kings. And some are psalms of wisdom. But the number one category, the single most frequent kind of psalm, is called a psalm of lament. Which is another word for complaint. That's the most frequent psalm. The prayer book of the people of God has more complaint than anything else. A psalmist complaining to God. Not complaining about God, but lamenting to God. Big difference. Big difference. 
And God apparently is not put off by this at all. He's included it in his scripture. God invites and wants people to do this. He wants his kids to express what's true. And David gets still enough before the Lord to get to the very bottom of his pain and discouragement. I mean, he feels it in his gut. And just expresses it to God. says, God, I'm complaining to you. I'm not complaining about you outward to others. I'm just giving the heart and soul of my life right from the depth of who I am. God, here it is. Now, many people, we never have the courage to do this. So many of us, we kind of stuff our disillusionment and disappointment down real deep. We pretend to be okay. We put on this stoic exterior. We force a few smiles. And to every time someone asks us, how are you? What do you say? Fine. Fine. But we avoid the pain that's inside of us. And it's not really solving anything. To cover our eyes and plug our ears and say, I'm not in the cave. I'm not in the cave. It's never worked for anybody. And yet there are others, some people, who live with such, the, such a chronic sense of discouragement. This chronic discouragement factor in their lives, you just get used to it. It becomes the air you breathe. You don't even notice, but it leaks out of them and it robs them of life and it drains the life out of the people around them. I want you to understand, church, real briefly this morning, something very clear about discouragement. Please understand this. God is never a God of discouragement. That's not him. He never is. When you have a discouraging spirit or line of thought in you, you can know that it's not from God when it's that discouraging kind of voice, when it's a diminishing kind of voice. Now hear this. God sometimes allows painful things. He brings conviction of sin. He brings repentance over fallenness. He brings challenges that are bigger than us. We get a vision of his holiness and glory that overwhelms us. That's God. But he never, ever brings discouragement. That's never him. It's not his heart. And any time you experience discouragement, you can be sure that it's not coming from God and stand up against it and renounce that attack of the enemy against your soul. And one of the ways we do that, when that discouragement comes, is not to absorb it, not to just take it in and play with it or think of it or sink into it. You express it to God. If you want to find confidence in the Lord, first step you have to take is just be honest with God about the discouragement factor in your life. Take a look around at the cave and describe it to God. Tell him what it looks like. Tell him what it feels like. Name it. Be open about it. Talk to the God who has made you about the experience you're in without holding back. I mean, isn't as parents and grandparents with young people in our lives, don't we want that from our own kids? I mean, how frustrating is it ever after every day of school? How was your day? How do you feel? Fine. Good. What'd you learn? Nothing. Awesome. Good talk. Um, we want this kind of intimate interaction with our own kids. How much more the God of the universe that made you and formed you with love. Would he want to hear what's true about your heart? Let's say those things. That's the first decision to complain up instead of out. There's a second decision we can make that builds our character in the cave. And that's the decision to resist temptation. Here's where we get into first Samuel 24. There's a very important connection between temptation and life in the cave. I mean, when you're in a dark era of life, when I'm in a dark place in my life, when I'm feeling discouragement, I'm vulnerable. Maybe you are too. And this is just truth. You'll be vulnerable to any temptation that promises to get you out of the cave or give you a moment's relief. Isn't that how temptation works? You can acknowledge where you are. And then temptation says, I know a way out and it's going to be fast. This could be really quick, just because no one wants to suffer. 
And just we find ourselves uniquely vulnerable in the cave. But 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David's in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men, 3,000 against 400. Might be a little intimidated. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went inside to to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, I imagine they whispered, this is the day the Lord spoke of. Now notice this. When he said to you, now his men are speaking, apparently God's words to David, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Here's a way out of the cave right now. Here's Saul. And honestly, the Bible tells us more about Saul here than we really want to know. But there it is. And and the reason that's in there is to show us that that Saul is totally vulnerable at this moment. There's nothing Saul could do. He's defenseless. Saul does not know what's going on. He's, you know, somewhat preoccupied. And notice what David's men say to him. The men say, this is the day that who spoke of? Who spoke of it? That the Lord spoke of. In other words, God promised you deliverance. Now, here it is and take it. Saul's here. You can do away with him. Just kill him. that, That must be what God wants. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. He doesn't want you to be miserable in this cave. God doesn't want you running around in the wilderness. He wants better for you. And Saul deserves judgment anyways. Heaven knows that. This is your way out, David. It must be God's will. The moment Saul is dead, you'll be king, like God said you would be. God's a little delayed right now. Time to take matters into your own hands. And don't you think, don't you think really, as a man just like you and I, that that must have been so tempting for David? And the scriptures say that David crept up unnoticed. Now pause right there. 400 people tell David, this is what the Lord is saying. Take matters into your hands. This is a shortcut out of the suffering. And David comes to the point where he takes a sword. He takes a weapon and he's creeping up behind Saul. And the whole tension of the text, really the whole tension of 1 Samuel is coming to an apex right here. In the language, you'll see there's like a pause there. And David crept up unnoticed. And the whole tension of the text is, what's David going to do with the sword? He crept up up unnoticed, I think with every step, deciding what course of action he was going to take. The cave's horrible. It is dark. I deserve better than this. God, God, you've told me. You've told me that I have something better to look forward to. Is this my chance? I know, God, you said that you'd be my deliverer, that you'd be my defender, that I'm supposed to wait for you, but God, he's right there. David creeps up slowly, unnoticed, weapon in hand, and cuts off a corner of Saul's rope and moves back into the cave. And with that act of just taking a piece of Saul's robe, David is absolutely conscious, stricken. The light comes on in the cave, and he says, What have I done for even taking that kind of action against God's anointed? And he says to his men in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift up my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked. That word rebuke just means stop it. You hear the word rebuke? It's stop it. 
David says, stop it to his men. And he did not allow them to attack Saul for him. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. It must have been so tempting for David to think, I can be out of this right now. Except this. It would have been wrong. It would have been a shortcut that ultimately, I think, would have destroyed David. It certainly would have sent a message to everybody in Israel that the way to become king is to kill the one who's on the throne. And I think it would have destroyed David's soul. For David to kill Saul would be about David being confident in himself. For David to wait to resist temptation demonstrates a confidence in God's promises and in God's timing that we would be really wise to consider today. Now some of you are in a cave right now and you're in a place that for whatever reason your confidence is shaken and there is a shortcut to relief that's right in front of you that's tempting you these days. Now just let me speak very frankly with you for a few moments. You know, maybe you feel so alone because of the realities of your relational world and you feel like maybe pornography is just a quick fix to answer the longing for intimacy. Or maybe to abuse alcohol or the abuse of drugs, prescription or otherwise, just to suppress the pain. And it's so tempting to think, I mean, this is so available. This is so accessible and it would feel so good. And I'm so miserable and lonely in this cave. Doesn't God want better for me? And God wants me to be happy. I mean, I can rationalize this. But you know in your heart as a follower of Jesus today that it's a shortcut. And you know it's not God's will for your life and that it contradicts his desires for you. And the question that your future pivots on today is, will you take the shortcut or will you submit to God in his wisdom and in his timing? Will we say as people of God, all right, Jesus, I'll spend, I choose more time in the cave. As hard as it is, I will not take a shortcut out of here and give myself over to something that doesn't honor you. Maybe you face a financial temptation. It's the temptation to deceive someone or somebody or just to ignore a destructive pattern of behavior. Maybe it's a temptation to quit something when you know God is calling you to endure, but it would feel so good to quit. And some of you are here just need to be asked this question. Will you have the courage not to take the shortcut? I mean, walk with David in the cave as he creeps up behind Saul. Will you have the courage not to take the shortcut? Because I'll tell you, a shortcut like, like that is destructive to the soul. Temptations like this that we give in to become cruel masters. They promise everything but give nothing back. Here's the deal. To take a shortcut assumes that God has become powerless in your circumstance. That God's everywhere except your cave. It is possible that God is using a difficult situation, regardless of how you got into it, to form your character and inspire your heart. So can I tell you, friends, just don't take the shortcut, whatever it is. I ask you that. Some of us are sitting here and say, thanks, Wade, easier said than done. Don't take the shortcut. Awesome, you're not in my life. What do I do about that? Well, uh, Pastor Sunder, in the years that he was mentoring me, remember about four, four or five years ago, so maybe you've heard this as a church, he was talking to me and some, some others of us about how to actually resist temptation. And I was thinking of that this week. And so this is for me, this is for us. And this is how I remember Pastor Sunder talking to me about it. If you really want to resist temptation, it's about harnessing the power of a stronger desire. You harness the power of a stronger desire. I mean, when you look at the text, David's desire to honor God trumped his desire to be king. There was something greater than sitting on the the throne of the palace. It was to be in a unique intimacy and relationship with God. 
He holds to a value that he will honor the anointed leader and not take matters into his own hand because his preeminent desire is to live God's way, not his own way. And it is possible in the community of faith as we walk out life together that it is possible to cultivate a desire for holiness and purity, for honor and courage that trumps the lure of sin. It is possible as people of Jesus to every day deny ourselves, take up our cross and be filled with the Spirit of God as we follow Jesus. And so for some of us, to resist temptation is way more than just willpower. I don't know about you. My willpower is about like six minutes long. And then it kind of runs out. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And ten minutes later, I'm saying, why did I do that? God, I've sinned again. Instead of getting into the pattern of trusting willpower, harness the power of the stronger desire, the true desire of your heart to live in righteousness and purity and truth. One of the things that David has to do when he's in the cave to find confidence in the Lord is to resist a very difficult temptation. And David encourages himself in the Lord. He named what it was that was discouraging him and then resisted temptation when it had to be resisted. Here's the last decision that's involved in finding confidence in the Lord, and that is this. We choose to find refuge in God. You know, sometimes you're in a cave where with work and thought, with prayer and God's help and bold, obedient action, you can get out of it. But sometimes you're in a cave that no human action can get you out of, and it's something you cannot fix, and it's something you can't heal on your own. It's something you cannot escape. And that day, can I tell you that all you can do is you cling to God, and you find Him as your ultimate refuge. It's the word David uses over and over and over again. Psalm 57, Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the day, until the disaster has passed. Finding ultimate refuge in God means this. It means that we get ourselves so immersed in God's presence and so convinced of his goodness and so devoted to his lordship that you discover that it's not the cave that defines you. You know, so often in suffering, we think what we need is answers. We think we need to know why. Why, God, is this happening? How did I get here? What's going on? Why? And we think that somehow an answer makes it better. Can I just tell you, the answer never makes it better. When we're in the cave, it's not answers we need, it's presence we need. It's God himself that we need to capture glimpses of his glory in the midst of the darkness. And some of you are in a cave that you can't get out of, and some of you aren't there yet, but again, you will be someday, sooner or later, everybody is. And on that day, we, the people of Rexdale Highest Church, people of Jesus, we find refuge in God and cling to the one piece of good news that matters, which is that God understands all about caves because God has been there. You see, Jesus entered the darkest cave that anyone has ever experienced when he went to the cross, absorbed our sin, and took that sin into the tomb, a cave of his own. And the days could not have been darker and more hopeless than when Jesus was placed in the grave. Jesus knows all about caves. He knows all about the despair and the loneliness that so quickly tries to entangle. But thanks be to God, when we look at the scriptures, we see that this same Jesus overcame all that sought to destroy us in his resurrection when he rose again. He rose again so that the cave is no longer the place of death, but the place of transformation where we become more like Jesus. That's the redeeming power of Jesus, isn't it? Amen? I mean, he takes the cave and turns it upside down on itself. I mean, he takes the cave, the place of disappointment, disillusionment, and darkness, and says this becomes the place of life and transformation. I mean, he takes our biggest temptation, which is to think, God's not here with me. And Jesus himself shows up in the cave and says, oh, I've been here before. And I overcame it all. 
And you'll find that when you walk with me, Jesus says, the darkness doesn't overwhelm you. The smell of the cave isn't what defines you. Jesus says, I define you, and I'm here with you. That's the redeeming power of Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you sense the Holy Spirit prompting you to pay attention to? For you, is it an invitation to lament this week? Do you have to get with people that know how to do this? Because honestly, a lot of us aren't good at this. Would you go into the Psalms and say, God, would you give voice to my lament? I don't have the words. And simply just tell God the condition of your cave and the condition of your soul. What temptation are you facing that may seem absolutely insurmountable? Would you be willing to enter into community to share your struggle together? And that together we harness the power of a stronger desire. What would it look like to find your refuge in God these days? What does it look like to gospel one another with the good news of Jesus? Now please hear this. In no way do I want to diminish the complexity of what you may be facing or ignore the reality of pain with cliches or three easy steps to make it all better. That's not what I'm doing here. It's not my heart intention. I simply want to invite you to consider these decisions over the long haul of your experience with God and position yourself to meet Jesus in a powerful way that you may not be expecting. We're going to take a few moments. Joel, would you come to the keyboard for me? I'm just going to lead us in a time of quiet, reflective prayer. Some questions that we want to ask Jesus. So I invite you to assume a posture of prayer. You can kneel, you can stand, you can stay where you're seated. And after that, we'll have a benediction. But I don't want us to rush this. We can't rush because the way of Jesus himself is a slow, methodical, intentional way. And so I want to give you the space and time to consider what the Spirit is saying to you today. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we say again, God, show us your glory. We so badly need an experience of your glory, especially when we're in the place of darkness, when we're in the place of disorientation and despair. And so I pray that right now you would speak your good and true and comforting word over your people. Would you shepherd us, Jesus, by your voice right now? I wonder if Jesus is just giving some of you to lament to him, to just tell him how it is today throughout the week. It was all the prayers for things that need to happen, things that need to get done, prayers about his glory that may be part of your prayers, just to open your heart and spill it and let him know how it is with you. That's what confession is. Confession is saying what's true about me to God. You can do that. You have permission to do that. I encourage you to do that with somebody else. What's the temptation that feels like a shortcut right now? You know, a seemingly enticing way to get out of the place of despair. But you know in your heart of hearts it dishonors God and it's a shortcut. 
What does harnessing the power of a stronger desire look for look like for you right now? I'll tell you, if you've messed up, if you've tripped up, if you already decided to take the shortcut, I'm going to tell you there's still forgiveness and grace for you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, there's forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ, and you can receive it today. You don't have to pay for your own sin. That's already been done. Just receive the mercy of Jesus. Man, that's for some of us today. That just hit my heart talk about this all the time but do you know that forgiveness is for you god's grace is undeserved favor is for you and he loves you so much he's not against you even with every bad decision he's not opposed to you in this moment right now he's actually pursuing you with love that's that feeling that you have you can simply receive his grace confess that god this is what i've done he knows anyway Repent, turn from it, and find the mercy of Jesus abundantly yours. What might it look like to find refuge in God this week? To intentionally choose places of community in life that inspires your soul? What would that be like? To be honest in community and share with trustworthy people the reality of your cave and have them come around you. And we find refuge in God with one another. I mean, he created us to be relational, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect fellowship, wanting us to experience the same in our daily lives. That's what refuge feels like. It's that clinging to God. Church, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to Draw our service to a close. Would you stand with me? But know this. Um, every weekend, I'd love this space to become a place of ongoing ministry. Even with the other service starting, it's okay. If you feel the prompting on your heart that you'd like to be prayed for, whether you're in the cave or not, you just have the sense, I would love to receive a word of blessing. I'd love to be prayed over, or I've got a need I'd like to share. If there's elders and spouses in the room or other pastoral team, Sam's down here, Um, We'd just love to take the time to pray with you. We're not in a hurry. You take the time to receive the ministry of grace. I mean, if all you have to do is get used to coming up and even saying, would you just bless me today? (laughs) We'd love to. Man, I'd love to put my hand on your shoulder or one of others of us, lay our hand on you and just bless you with God's favor. And so do take that time. If you got to get your kids or you want your kids to receive prayer, go get them, bring them back. It's all good. We'll be here a little while. But now this, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, go in peace. Have a great week.